0: Apamada and its programs are supported by your generosity and your generosity and support makes such a difference. You can find a link for contributions on the website at appamata.org. Thank you.
1: Good morning, everyone. Good morning. So glad to see you all. Thank you for being here. I ask for your forgiveness from from the outset because I think I'm going to talk about myself a little more than I'd like to, but I thought that's maybe in this instance the best dharma gate to use. And so, uh, thank you in advance for indulging me. <clears throat> I want to offer a little background koan just to frame my my talk. I won't return to it, but maybe it'll do its work by magic, as koans tend to do. And it's a series of two teachings from the Zen tradition. I'm just going to read them one after the the next. The first one says, one must not act as one pleases. One must submit to all restrictions. And the other one says, The master said to the assembly, when the great function works, it does not follow rules. So a little bit about myself. Uh, I've been a person who immersed himself from a pretty young age in science. Uh, Biology was my favorite. And then I went, went on to study cellular biology, molecular biology, plant biology, evolutionary biology, immunology, virology as well as chemistry and organic chemistry, spending a lot, a lot of time banging chemicals together and, uh, in physics. And oddly, not oddly, but maybe <laughs> reasonably in the last, I would say four years or so, I've developed a pretty consistent habit of reading physics. That's kind of just what drew my, uh, my attention, and I found it to be quite beautiful and profound and unexpected. So I'm, I would say, reasonably steeped in the scientific method and the scientific way of evaluating and thinking about the world, both theoretically and in practice. So for example, um, you know, as one of these things, like the moment I realized why Newton's theory of gravity as a force is an illusion that when the apple falls from the tree, what he taught as the force of gravity, that's, that's an illusion and like having that kind of insight in a certain moment, but like why that's an illusion is really, to me, powerful. That takes us to Einstein's theory of general relativity, the explanation for why that's an illusion. And so one of the, I think, truly remarkable things about science is we've now come up with all these equations where to the whatever 20th decimal point, so much of our full understanding of the cosmos and electricity and internet, everything that we now sort of take for granted lives on top of these equations being absolutely precise. And I remember in several places in my scientific journey coming across, coming from the scientist's perspective, the notion that there is no room for more stuff in these equations. These equations work with incredible precision. So if you want to add something else, it would break the whole thing. And clearly, the whole thing works. So we don't have room for more stuff in there. And so I, I've i kind of been operating from this worldview I think for a while, or at least it's one I'm very familiar with, a kind of respect for this collection of powerful methods and ideas that really goes pretty far to helping us understand the world. And so, when I started practicing Zen Buddhism, I guess now close to 14 years ago, for whatever reason, in my path of study, predominantly I encountered texts and teachers and lectures and books that. The Buddha's teaching was often framed in a, I would say, modern way, so that the question of rebirth was either not talked about at all, or, and this was also pretty common, it was framed as though he was being rhetorical in order to skillfully engage with his audience in his time. So he would, when he would talk about rebirth, it was sort of for the purpose of communicating, but but mostly it was not a topic that he had much interest in talking about, or maybe even what he believed. These were my teachings. These were the teachings that I encountered. And so that was all well and good because it aligned very nicely with the scientific method. So I had no issues, I just took them at face value. And so I just wanna be clear in this moment that we all have obviously different paths of, just different paths. We encounter whatever sources we encounter at whatever times in our lives, and those are our teachers. And I'm not making a claim here for one path being better or different. I'm just telling you, this was my path. And so, um, I want to, I want to share with you just a couple of these frames, modernist frames, and these are quotes from, uh, scholars writing about how Buddhism frames the notion of rebirth. So one is the Buddha utilized three doctrines of rebirth and karma, or I'm sorry, the doctrines of rebirth and karma to impart ethical teachings, but did not himself believe in these doctrines. Another scholarly view is the Buddha was not interested or held no specific views about the question of human survival or life after death. He roundly condemned speculation about the past or the future, about prior lives or future lives, as unprofitable and mistaken. He was only concerned with man's present state of anxiety, suffering, and dissatisfaction, and the solution for it. So that's a nice example of a view that I was very familiar with. And so, but I would like to say maybe a fruit of my, if I I were to evaluate myself positively, I would say a fruit of one fruit of my Zen practices. I, I, I believe that over the years it has helped me stay curious. And so when Peg offered a class on rebirth, Uh, I showed up for the first class and had a really rough time of it, And and here's why. I felt a very palpable sense of annoyance and irritation with predominantly some of the questions that I was hearing other people asking. um and the way i i now because this is all in hindsight the way i think i interpreted my own irritation was that all this talk about rebirth and dying these the people in the class are just misunderstanding the fundamental teachings of what the buddha was talking about like it, it it just doesn't align and so i was sort of um, I don't know how. I guess how else to to express it, but I was annoyed, irritated, and this feeling of being annoyed and irritated would not leave me alone. It wasn't one of these like, oh, that class is just not for me, or that one quest, whatever. I just kept the day after day. I kept thinking about this. I kept returning to predominantly. Why am I so? Annoyed, and sort of like, yeah. I'll leave it at that. And so I did the next thing. I took the next step, which was uh, on the syllabus. Peg had this book, "Rebirth in Early Buddhism and Current Research." So and so, I read it in my morning walks. And a really important thing happened to me. Uh, first of all, this scholar, Bipu Analayo, is someone that I really trust. And I've read other works of his. And so that made a big difference, just that kind of what I feel like credibility or connection I had with an author um, it, in the rhetorical realm ethos, the principle of ethos matters, like the source where things are coming from matters. And so I read this and encountered a lot of fascinating ideas. But I'll read you the summation of one part of this journey. He writes, an examination of the earliest textual sources at our our disposal, makes it indubitably clear that teachings on rebirth are an integral part of the early Buddhist thought, to which we have access through the texts. This leaves little ground for the hypothesis that the historical Buddha did not teach rebirth, or even that he taught rebirth only as an expedient means, without himself accepting it. So, I'm going to take you back to my my own position in all of this. Here I was, irritated that I had a view of, of rebirth and its place in the tradition, and here's this scholar basically refuting all of it, like 13 years of me thinking I knew or thought I knew, and that this annoyance I felt at others was, um, coming out of a, I guess, pretty clear place of ignorance. So uh, there, there are a lot of fascinating passages in here, case studies and call it reasons for rebirth as something to consider profoundly, but I don't actually want to get into those. That's not the purpose of my talk, (laughs) curiously enough. I mean, I'd be happy to discuss some of that uh, with you in in different contexts, but there's one passage here in particular that really, that I thought is the main issue. It's not about the sort of outcome of my inquiry. this thing that I've been wrestling with for a long time. And he has a section in here called confirmation bias. And I'm going to read you this section in its entirety. It's not that long, but I think it's kind of the central point of my talk this morning. So as best you can see if you could hear this. It's hard. At least it was hard for me. For the continuing debate about the topic of rebirth, it is helpful to keep in mind the problem of selective attention under the influence of what cognitive psychology refers to as confirmation bias or my side bias. As a result of which data will easily be misjudged And misunderstood. The impact of such confirmation bias, or my side bias, on the processing and evaluation of data has a considerable bearing on the debate regarding rebirth. The basic working mechanism of this bias can be described as follows Individuals will dismiss and discount empirical evidence that contradicts their initial views, but will derive support from evidence of no greater probativeness that seems consistent with their views. Through such biased assimilation, even a random set of outcomes or events can appear to lend support for an entrenched position And both sides in a given debate can have their positions bolstered by the same set of data. That's not even the good part. (laughs) Again, that's not really what really got to me, but but hang hang in there with me. The biased assimilation processes underlying this effect may include a propensity to remember the strengths of confirming evidence but the weaknesses of disconfirming evidence. To judge confirming evidence as relevant and reliable, but disconfirming evidence as irrelevant and unreliable. And to accept confirming evidence at face value while scrutinizing disconfirming evidence hypercritically. Here's the kicker, the effect of this tendency is not mitigated by intelligence, nor does higher education provide an effective vaccination against the impact of confirmation bias. Thus, the danger of such bias is not merely confined to the faithful, who all too eagerly accept anything as truth, in fact, as long as it confirms their belief. It similarly holds sway over skeptics, who just as eagerly dismiss anything as false and fake as long as it conflicts with their preconceived notions. In fact, confirmation bias has been shown to have had a considerable effect on science itself. One can see confirmation bias both in the difficulty with which new ideas break through, opposing established points of view, and in the uncritical allegiance they are often given once they have become part of the established view themselves. So I'm reading this and I'm thinking, uh (laughs) uh-oh. Because I, for whatever karmic reason, uh, devoted myself to the path of science, I have spent my adult life, getting educated, teaching others in fact. And even when I'm fully aware of this thing called confirmation bias, I often can't get out of my own way because it's so, it's a force I think that is so powerful that even when presented with data, we use that data not to examine, but to confirm. And the more of it we have, the more critical we become of things that aren't already established. And I think that's a tremendously difficult thing out of which, from out of which to get to set yourself free. And so uh, the book Rebirth, uh, it just kind of, after this phase of, of my journey, I kind of felt like I allowed myself the permission to return to a world that has more mystery in it, in which not everything is explained by science or doesn't have to fit in with the equations to the 20th decimal point. And I felt an immediate sense of uh, relief. And it's something I've always known, because it's not something it's, I live a kind of uh, way of being where I could hop from one way of examining the world to another, but, but the moment I'm trapped by confirmation bias, it's harder for me to return to the mystery. And so I'm grateful for this book and its teachings to have had the mystery come back into my life. And I also recently saw a film called Uncle Boonmi, who can recall his past lives which is by Thai director, and it's absolutely beautiful. And um, it's, uh, it, it's a portrait of what life is like when people fully accept rebirth and death and past lives as just this is what, how things are. And if your dead so-and-so shows up at dinner, you just offer a placemat, mat, and there's nothing you know weird about it. And it's a truly beautiful film. So I'm glad to um, have mystery back in my life. And so I want to talk about another piece of my daily existence that I've struggled with, I guess, for the last three years now, which is my own response to the larger social response to COVID. And it seems similar now with this sort of framework that I've sort of unearthed about myself regarding rebirth and science that the same pattern, I fell into the same pattern as confirmation bias uh, with my own responses to COVID as my approach to rebirth. And mainly that in hindsight, if I examine my response to COVID and policies and the sort of larger social conversation around it, I have felt all of the following things. At some point in the, in the years, I felt moral indignation at others, about others. I've experienced the shaming impulse, a desire to shame others. I think, for example, this was early on in the pandemic when some people weren't wearing masks, and I really want to shame them for that choice. I remember feeling arrogance and feelings of superiority. I remember insulting people mostly in my head, but that's still an impulse. Definitely an intolerance because my position knows best. So those not in alignment, um, I have no room for you and an unwillingness to listen. And the thing, the tricky bit about this last one is that I actually have a lot of highly educated, morally conscientious, ethical people in my life, um, many devoted to the practice of health and well being, who had an opposing view about vaccinations and the COVID response to me, and I more or less was not willing to listen. Because I had my again, dominant view that it I was hypercritically skeptical to use Analayo's words. And so uh, I won't talk about this very long, but then I had more personal reasons to explore the policies around COVID. And so I did a deep dive, similarly to my dive on rebirth, where I just want to draw on my capacity to get out from confirmation bias and see what other views even say. And so I want to read to you two, it's it's a very short section from an essay thinking about, the relationship between COVID policies and uh, cultural identity. So it's not very long, but I think it's important and gets to the heart of what I'm talking about. So a disparaging tone infuses the mainstream media's treatment of other non Western treatments for COVID. Let's take, for example, traditional Chinese medicine, abbreviated TCM, which has been used on over 90% of patients in China with COVID. While the Chinese people and government are quite confident in the therapeutic effectiveness, Effectiveness of the six main herbal formulas, some thousands of years old, used to treat COVID, the Western popular and scientific press knows better. Here are some representative quotes. These are all quotes from uh, large media outlets or magazines. China is promoting. Coronavirus treatments based on unproven traditional medicines. For traditional Chinese medicine, there is no good evidence, and therefore its use is not just unjustified, but dangerous from nature magazine. Traditional Chinese medicine can also give patients a false sense of security, leading them to neglect proven medications or therapies remedies, which China is exporting as part of its efforts to combat the coronavirus around the world, pose both direct and indirect risks to patients. In another quote from the BBC, the lack of standards and almost no clinical trials have hampered the widespread adoption of traditional Chinese medicine. Critics say China is now using the pandemic as a way to promote traditional Chinese medicine abroad. So those are the samples. And then the author's commentary here about those quotes. If it took an attitude of cultural respect, the Western media would not be so quick to write off a medical tradition with thousands of years of clinical experience and refinement practiced by literally hundreds of thousands of doctors. Chinese people alone make more than 2.5 billion visits to traditional Chinese medicine doctors annually. To imagine that they have somehow been in the grips of a collective mass delusion for thousands of years is a kind of lazy cultural arrogance. It is the mentality of, they must not be as smart, as rational, as evidence-based as we are. Their advancement means to adopt our medicine. We can improve them by bringing our ways to them because we know better than they do. It would be an error to attribute the dismissal of traditional Chinese medicine to overt racism. The Western medical establishment rejects traditional Chinese medicine in large part because it is unwilling to seriously look at it in the first place. Who's the the author? Uh, Charles Eisenstein. And his credentials are from the coronation essays from the
2: COVID movement. He's someone that's been. That book has been taken up by some of the greatest purveyors of medical misinformation. Right. Behavior. That's the. I, I don't want to put an asterisk by his name because, yeah, to we my humble perspective, he's right, he get back to that not credible. Right. That's the, Right. That's the topic of my. Okay. Just want to make sure you're getting there. Just.
1: Yeah, that's what I'm talking about, John. That that's that's exactly the issue okay. at hand especially with the notion of confirmation bias that we start from a place of knowing, and then we credit or discredit people based on our already held views. So uh, I'll read that sentence again. The Western medical establishment rejects traditional Chinese medicine in large part because it is unwilling to seriously look at it in the first place. After all, how could anything match science? Furthermore, a cultural misapprehension of the basic philosophy of traditional Chinese medicine reduces a sophisticated, coherent, and self-sufficient set of paradigms to a crude, haphazard corpus of placebo, superstition, and guesswork. This cultural superiority complex assumes that we in the West know better, that our standards of proof are higher, that we can see obvious flaws in reason and evidence that they cannot. Just the experts quoted in Nature and NBC News belittle traditional Chinese medicine for using vague terms and non-pharmacological concepts or testing too many combinations of herbs to parse out their specific effects. What are non-pharmacological concepts? Things like wind heat, spleen chi, or liver fire, for example. To the culturally bound Western scientific mind, these are nonsense. They are sensible only if one admits the possibility that another culture might apprehend the world as astutely and fruitfully as ourselves, using an entirely different conceptual vocabulary. As for too many combination of herbs, this bespeaks an even more fundamental blindness. Traditional Chinese medicine is holistic and its formulas are irreducible. The whole is greater than the sum of its parts because its herbal formulas are synergistic. The normal experimental method of isolating variables and identifying active ingredients that can then become the basis of pharmaceutical drugs is antithetical to tra- traditional Chinese medicine's basis, basic diagnostics and therapies. As for lack of standards, that is because prescriptions and doses are tailored to the individual. The demand that traditional Chinese medicine research abide by standardized and reductionist practices is an act of cultural imperialism, justifiable if and only if our own culture's framework of knowledge is superior to theirs. So, As I try to piece together my own journey in being someone who is very familiar with the feeling of science has the answer. I know how science works. Therefore, anybody, any view that comes from outside this framework is And this is where my shame and feelings of superiority and intolerance and anger comes from. In that context, I know what it means to dismiss an alternate view without giving myself permission to truly listen first and understand it deeply. And I think the danger of this main thing I'm talking about, confirmation bias, for us as Zen practitioners, is that it creates what I think of as a closed system. A system where before genuine dialogue can happen, before the exchange of ideas can pollinate before ideas can pollinate one another, we dismiss, again, that which does not already align with our views as discreditable, not worth our time, dangerous. And I think there's an alternate equal danger of having a closed system of mind. Where, whereas I think my experience in fruits of Zen teachings is that I don't know, or a mind that is capable of saying, I don't know, so let me examine and see if maybe there's more to learn about something. I think that's, and I think the reason that's dangerous based on my own experience is because the moment I engage with ideas that don't already align with my own, I am putting myself in the vulnerable position of being proven wrong. And then the shame that could potentially come with having made public claims about X, Y, and Z, and now I have to walk them back because look, turns out my examination was incomplete. And that hurts, that's painful. That's extremely painful because it
0: is shame-inducing, at least for me.
1: And so I'll close by, by with uh, two quotes. that I think speak to this real complicated problem of confirmation bias for us as practitioners. The first is by T.S. Eliot, who wrote, think how history has many cunning passages, contrived corridors and issues, deceives with whispering ambitions, guides us by vanities. And the last quote is a a quote by a philosopher. She writes, Nietzsche does not demand that we have the courage of our convictions. This courage is often the source of much mischief in the world. He asks us to have the courage to question our convictions. So I feel that a topic like this, uh, that inherently asks us to face ourselves and especially if we have a strong reaction to something, uh, how capable are we to sit still with these discomforts is hard, I think hard for all of us. I'm certainly feeling a lot of um, vulnerability and doubt, and as well as all the other emotions that I've been processing for some time, shame and shame at my own certainties. So I hope this was in some way interesting to, to some of you. I'm curious if there's any <clears throat> questions
0: or feedback. Um, I, I have a deep appreciation for our practice and for the way that I see you approach it. Um, I went to a very traditional wedding yesterday. Um, and. I'm still kind of reeling from the, um, from what the attitude that was put forward towards everyone about ideas. Um, So today, hearing this, I have a really deep appreciation for our practice of of, uh, inquiry, of don't-know mind, and of being able to sit with the discomfort. I just, I really. I
3: really appreciate your courage. I see uh, Joel too. Maybe Joel can go first. Hi Christoph, hi, thank you. And uh, I, I agree with what uh, Jessica just said that the, it it shows great courage to uh, advance the ideas uh, or the the questions that you're advancing today um uh you and i have talked about this before and i'm definitely one of those people that uh, you are seeing as hanging on very tightly to my confirmation bias and uh, I, I i own that uh, there are lots of where, areas in which confirmation bias um, is invisible harmful uh, and and blocks growth um I would say that that my problem with what you are arguing today or what you're putting forward I don't know if it was arguing is the right word um is that it, it ignores you know just to, to say oh we must we've we only talk about efficacy and testability and stuff in terms that reconfirm our own bias uh, in terms of like dealing with COVID treatment um that um, it ignores the fact that we have a history, that we as Western people have a history. In, and, and up until a couple years ago, uh, and for some people still, that diseases were explained by demon possession and by uh, spiritual factors that were outside the, the realm of testability uh, and, and had to be accepted on faith and had to be dealt with through faith and that, um, we have had the experience of, uh, you know, is, uh, is a plague caused by spiritual factors. Do hurricanes get caused by the fact that, um, you know, homosexuality is legal in a, in a country or a region, uh, that those that, um, We we have a history in which we have taken to using data to test whether or not those are reliable beliefs, right? Uh, and uh, what what I'm saying is that the um, accusation of cultural arrogance is a potent one for people like me, and for people who you know participate in zen and who want to be not who want to embrace not knowing and want to embrace uh, being fair to others and being respectful to others that's as a rhetorical stance that's a very potent rhetorical stance but i think it leaves out a huge amount of our own experience and uh, you know it's good to not Be looking down on other people. You're right about that. Certainly, that's a fact. But maybe that's not what it all it is all about. Um, And as far as treatments for um, COVID, as far as masking, as far as vaccines, we have a choice in adopting policies at Avamada that. Um, will be, uh, we, we can end up doing harm, physical harm, and that is something to be avoided. I think that out of, that our, that our, uh, uh, re- what we are required to do as, um, as practitioners and as members of a sangha that, where we practice mutual care, is to address what harm can be caused and to mitigate those harms wherever we can. Uh, and that if we adapt, adopt the stance of saying, well, we can't be looking down on other people's cultures, therefore we must be paralyzed in making decisions around masking or about requiring that people be vaccinated, etc. that that is. That is not helpful to our sangha, and it's not a practicable stance for the people who are, you know, on the on the reopening committee and, and so on. So again, I, I respect that you are inquiring deeply into deeply ingrained cultural issues, um, but my my objection is to, to what you're saying. Has to do with the practicalities of it. So, thank you, Christoph.
1: Cersei, I saw you have your hand raised.
4: Am I unmuted? Yes. Mm-hmm. Hi, everyone. It's nice to see all of your faces. Um. I appreciate what everyone is bringing to this and um, how difficult the conversations are. And I do see confirmation bias being very much plaguing our country in the whole political division that we're experiencing and how people process information. So I think it far exceeds the specific question of um, COVID and our COVID responses. It's kind of everywhere. and um, But one of the things that I wanted to return to, to kind of move us away from the COVID conversation um, to the bigger picture, uh, is that much of what Shish talked about today resonates with me as an anthropologist. Uh, It reflects the perspective of cultural relativism, which I teach to my students um, of being aware of our own, biases, our own cultural lenses, right? You can look at them as biases or you can just look at it as your worldview and how it colors what you perceive in the world as being right or wrong or the way to do things or not to do things or even your tolerance. And um, because UT now has a medical school, uh, we have been looking for medical anthropologists and medical anthropology is one of my absolute Favorite fields within my entire discipline. But what's really interesting about the long, uh, you know, century long uh, period of research in medical anthropology is that we see, as anthropologists in the field, medical systems that are non Western medical systems at work and that are in every conceivable form. All kinds of forms of shamanism, all kinds of forms of non-traditional um, doctors that are, you know, not Western doctors, but doctors that are traditional healers in their communities. And what we know as anthropologists is that efficacy is there. They work. In those communities where those systems are practiced, people get well. And what's and we don't understand why. We have arguments for why that is that have to do with like social systems because what happens is across the board in hundred, you know, hundreds and thousands of different examples, we see healing takes place in ways that we cannot understand from a Western medical lens. And I personally find that mystery to be um, intellectually interesting, but also, opens my heart spiritually, because it means there's something I don't understand that I get to, that I get to sit before the mystery of that and, and try to open myself to understanding it. So I just wanted to share that. I don't know if it's helpful at all, but it is, it's just me trying to point to the, the much more global, larger, bigger stakes, um, that I think are, are are being raised by this. So thank you.
1: Thank you, Cersei. Rosemary.
5: Hi, uh, Christoph, thank you so much. And I, I just um, um, really appreciate your, your vulnerability and in um, bringing forward what what you've been going through. And um, I have a lot of compassion for what it um, must have felt like to be, you know, maybe hit with a kind of tsunami of information or just um, ideas that that really conflicted with, you know, kind of your being. <clears throat> and it um, reminds me of my early days in practice, where one delusion after another was being struck down. Um, through practice, and and it was painful. So I just wanted to say I appreciate your um, what you're going through, and um, that you were, you know, open enough um, and trusting enough, I guess, to share with us. So thank you. That's all I wanted to say. <clears throat>
0: I just wanted to mention thank you for your talk. It's always um, opening and. In- Uh, One of the things that struck me was like the danger of getting stuck in a view. And I myself do that, right? And I realized that one of the reasons why I do that is because of safety, right? It's a sense for me what feels safe, right? It's like a nice, cozy blanket to just pull you up. And to then have that openness to the mystery, which I try and embrace. And also, you know, sometimes as everybody is spoken to a certain view of um, uh, when I am encountered with another view, it's a threat. And I'm thinking in particular, like, even as you were talking, it's like, gosh, couldn't I just put this over in somebody else's brain so they could have this view, right? Even there, I'm wanting to manipulate for my own safety to create another view and another person. Um, But the idea of of the mystery and not knowing, I don't know, for me, I have this um, analogy of just being on this road, it's treacherous, it's up the curvy mountain road, and how do I stay in that middle path? And the truth is, is that through my life, I'm over here and I'm on the edge and always trying to come back for that safe place because it's dangerous out there. I mean, in terms of the confirmation bias, society, and um, I just, in terms of a practice, it's just how do we walk through that. And that's the great mystery that I'm trying to embrace. And and also I, other people's views, as I say there, they can be scary, right? And, and I know mine can be for them as well. And that's also what I try and come at is is, you know, we talk about even with COVID, it's like safety and harm. And, you know, the other side view from mine is, is, you know, they think that this, that, and the other is unsafe. And so, how do we hold space for all of that? And that's the practice for me. That's I have to say.
2: Just one quick comment. Uh, thank you, first. Um, these are just supremely important and interesting. Topics, so thanks for bringing it to us. Um, I just want to like, I'm curious your perspective on what seems to me to be sort of the the other side. Like, I totally agree that like holding too tight to views is, is an issue. Um, but what seems really like you like characteristic of the particular model that we're in right now is that, um, the conversation often ends at the point of like, well, you have your view and I have mine. And so like, like we've lost touch with a sense of common trust or shared experience or like, okay, so we have a disagreement. What's the next step to figure out what the better view is, even though it might be, uh, you know, open to change and part of, a, of an ongoing process. And like, you know, like I teach science to little kids and a test I often do with them is like, disprove that the invisible odorless, colorless dragon is sitting on my shoulder right now. Like, and they'll say this and I'll be like, well, it just is, you know, and they're like, well, let's shoot a laser at it. I'm like, it's lasers penetrated completely. You know what I mean? And you go on and on and on. And, on and it turns out you, like, it's not actually about proving things true or false, but justifying the view you decide to take based on warrant Right, it's a good idea to hold this view. So like when it comes down to something like rebirth, it's not an empirical question, what happens after you die? It gets confusing when we try to treat it as an empirical question because we live in an empirical science society, but there's no path there. And so the question doesn't seem to be so much as like, keep an open mind that the claims of ancient Hinduism in ancient India might actually be literally true, than it is like, mm-hmm. like, what would it be to take that view up? Like, is it reasonable? Is there a warrant to it at all? And if you can't describe the warrant, then why can't why don't I just make up whatever I want? And when everybody, anybody challenges me, I just say, like, you're biased, man. Like, your views are yours and mine are mine. Because yeah. that feels like the shattered society we live and Everyone's kind of like, well, everyone's entitled to their view. Mm-hmm. And I'm always like, you're right. But then there's a next step, which is that you have to take that view to the public forum. Exactly. So, like, how do we resolve these that, kind of issues? Exactly. So that's my question. We we are running out
1: of time, but that's precisely the answer, I think, John. Uh, what you, I think, eloquently described are the two main ditches. Mm-hmm. And believe me, I teach this also. In my classes on literature, the relativistic. I can make this poem mean whatever I want because it's just what I think it is, right? And versus the other extreme, the unless it's quantifiable and measured, it's not real, right? So those are the two ditches. My genuine feeling about how we move forward has to do with this notion of time and doing the work with an open mind, for a long period longer period of time than say one article or two articles right to truly immerse yourself like i think an anthropologist would right? truly into this other perspective but not to defeat it right not because that's confirmation bias thing again right it's can we do we have enough courage as practitioners to truly understand whatever thing we're trying to understand but to do it in this way that i'm talking about is the thing i think our culture is lacking we have impatience we have our own previously aligned views and we simply already have categorized whatever view does or does not match with us therefore what i've heard come back to me is i'm not gonna read the thing you're asking me to read Because I did a little research here and that's enough for me. I think it's trickier than that. I think it's unfortunately much harder than that. Like reading a little bit over here is, 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 is invites you into the confirmation bias trap. So it's almost like if we wish to heal and have these true conversations with one another, it comes with sacrifice. That's what I'm finding. It comes with sacrifice of. Knowing and being being risking being wrong, and that most people are not willing to to do. Time, vulnerability, <laughs> because we skip straight to the step of defensiveness, I think. And then we get caught exactly as you described. So we have to uh, stop, but thank you all for such uh, vibrant participation and for bringing yourselves to uh, a really difficult quandary for us (laughs) as humans.